you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me this morning to the book of John. John chapter 17. John chapter 17. We are in between series here at Ascension, and so this morning I want our hearts to land here. Maybe we'll start a new series next week. Maybe we'll wait another week or two. We'll see how things go. But this morning, I'd like us to turn our hearts and our attention to John 17, and as we do so, we go back in time from where we were last week. If you were here last week, if you were somewhere else celebrating and recognizing the historical reality of Jesus risen from the grave, well, today we move back in time just a few days to a passage that is known as Jesus' high priestly prayer. Jesus at this point is still on earth. He is staring down the fate that awaits him at the cross where he will become both the one who offers sacrifice on behalf of his people and one who is himself the sacrifice for God's people. He is our great high priest, the last high priest. It's a beautiful, long, lengthy prayer, a prayer of love for his people. It's worth exploring, it's worth meditating on much more than we're going to do this morning. But this prayer tells us, reminds us of what Jesus thinks of us, us being his people. I mean, he says things, he prays things like, we, you, are a gift from the Father to him. Isn't that amazing? He prays for your joy. He wants your joy. He prays for your holiness. He wants you to be changed. And he prays where we're specifically going to go today He prays for your unity. And maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, unity? Really, Nate? We're going here again? Haven't we talked about unity a lot? If you're thinking that, you're right. We have. Last summer I preached for several weeks Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, and we were reminded there that Jesus breaks down the walls that divide us. He calls us to be eager to maintain the unity that we've been giving. I've written newsletter articles about it for those of you who read the newsletter. But here's the thing. I don't really think that we've been stretched in this yet. You see, for the most part, unity or our perceived unity here at Ascension Presbyterian Church has been achievable in large part because we have not been together. Our mission statement says that we are called to be a community A community of worshiping, maturing, and multiplying disciples of Jesus Christ. But it's been a struggle to be a community this past year. Through no fault of our own. 
Instead, we have largely hung out with people who think like us. And our only interaction with those who think differently than us, the only interaction with our differences, has been through Facebook posts where everyone has a megaphone, whether they can handle that megaphone or not. And everyone has a hammer, whether they deserve it or not. But praise God, Lord willing, those times are coming to an end because we are slowly Slowly but surely, being made one again. We're joining our voices together in the same room. We're breaking bread together again. We're encouraging one another face to face in the Lord. And frankly, while while this delights me as your pastor, it also concerns me greatly. And it concerns not only me, but all of your shepherds. We've talked about it. We have prayed earnestly about it. Because it's our desire that this church, that this local expression of Christ's body be made whole again and that you, brothers and sisters, strive to be diligent to keep the unity that is ours and the unity that we've enjoyed. And so yes, I am going to talk about unity today. I'm probably going to say things that you've heard me say before in other contexts. Jesus is going to pray about unity today. And we're going to think about why it matters and what it looks like. And so let's begin with Jesus' words with that lengthy introduction. John chapter 17, starting at verse 20, reading down just through verse 23, just a short portion of this prayer of our Lord and Savior. Let's stand together, if you would, out of honor for God's word. John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. Jesus says, he prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. Surprise, surprise, we live in a fractured world. Never in our lifetimes probably has this been more obvious. 
thinking about it spiritually, thinking about it properly, the present reality of sin has destroyed not only our peace with God the Father as we search for satisfaction and worship everything else but Him, but the present reality of sin has destroyed our peace with one another. And so history is littered with examples, right? North versus South, German versus Jew, Hutu versus Tutsi, Israeli versus Palestinian, white versus black, Democrat versus Republican, and I could go on and on. Ethnic division runs deep in our world. Political ideology is a passionate thing. Worldviews clash in profound ways. But is there a place? Is there a community where unity can be achieved, where peace can be displayed, where differences don't necessarily dissolve, but fade into the background in light of a greater concern. The world says that only with birds of a feather can we flock together, right? And so we've got to have chemistry, we've got to have hobbies, we've got to have the same political ideology, we've got to be in the same season of life. That's really what binds people together. That's really what creates unity. And the Bible says, no, there's actually a better place for our differences. And of course, brothers and sisters, it's us. It's the church. As we think about just these couple sentences that Jesus prays, I want us to do so thinking about three encouraging realities about our unity that I want us to see this morning. I want us to set our hearts on for just a few minutes. The first one is this. Our unity is grounded in who God is is. Our unity is grounded in who God is. Now, we don't need to spend a lot of time here because we spent some time here uh, when we were in Ephesians last summer. Paul says a similar thing in Ephesians chapter 4, but Jesus says it explicitly here, verse 21, that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. Now that's a mouthful, but it's also a mindful What Jesus is saying, the reality that he is pointing out for us is the participation in the life of the Godhead that you and I are invited into. If you've been at Ascension for any length of time, you know I love talking about this. This is what we were created for. This is why we were created. To share in the love and fellowship of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The fellowship and love that they have enjoyed for eternity past. And so as you and I come to Jesus, as we give our lives to Him, we are united to Him. His Spirit comes and lives in us. And therefore, the life of God is ours and it's ours collectively. This eternal, loving, communal 
and giving existence of the three persons of the Trinity overflows its banks (laughs) into the life of this communion. And this is a reality that is already ours. And yet something that in our fallenness and in our sin, we have to constantly be vigilant in order to fight for, in order to maintain. Which is why Jesus prays for us here. Which is why Jesus right now is still praying for us in this. Father, give them the same love and unity that we enjoy and that we have enjoyed forever. I mean, that reality is incredibly hopeful, amazing, motivating. Jesus is praying for supernatural, spiritual unity in his church, in this church. So that's the strong, firm foundation. That's the motivation. So how do we go about it? Well, that's the second thing I want us to think about this morning. And it's this. Our unity is centered on truth. Our unity is centered on truth. Let me ask you a question. How do you, how do you view the word unity? When you hear it, when you think about its implications in this community, what are you thinking about? I was reading one author this week and, and he said this, and I quote, he says, unity has been viewed as a soft option for those who don't care about truth. Do you ever think like that? Unity is a soft option for those who really don't care about truth, for those who are indifferent. I hope you don't view unity that way because the unity that Jesus is praying for is unity that reflects the life of the Trinity, the life of the Godhead. So only unity centered in truth will do. Unchanging, absolute truth. Verse 20, Jesus says, I ask for those who will believe in me through their word. What is Jesus saying? Who will believe in me? It's the gospel. Jesus, the one who came from the Father, who is one with the Father, who is the eternal Son of God, who was slain for you and for me, that is the truth that our unity is centered upon. It is the basis of our unity is the church, but I know here is where it gets a bit more complicated, right? Complicated because as other truth emanates from that central truth, from that central reality, well, what truth are we supposed to be unified around then? And I recognize this morning that there are, there are levels of unity. 
Years ago, for those of you who are old enough to remember, the, the promise keeper movement was, was a big thing. Thousands of men gathering in stadiums all over this nation to hear God's word, to sing his praises. I remember myself as a young man in his 20s traveling to South Carolina, crowding into a stadium with 20, 30,000 men to sing God's Praises. Men, men whom I disagreed with on plenty of points. But men who I could express my unity in Jesus with in that context. Now maybe those men weren't men that I would want to worship with every Lord's Day, week after week. Perhaps our differences in vision and mission in context are are too substantial. But in that context, I could. Think about yourself. Many of you drive to get here. You drive past at least one, if not three, if not seven churches. Right? And you come here, maybe it's the liturgy, maybe it's the the commitment to God's word, maybe it's the confessional backbone that we have, maybe it's the Presbyterian polity that we hold to. Whatever it is, you expect that those who gather here hold similar convictions to yours, right? Okay, maybe they, maybe they don't hold them perfectly like you do, but in the same way, similar, right? But what if you find out that, that they don't think covenant children should be baptized at birth? What if you find out that they, that they speak in tongues in their private times with the Lord? What if you find out they voted for Biden? Or what if you find out they voted for Trump? Would that be an abandonment of truth? I read a book recently that that I think helps categorize our differences and think through potential conflicts in the church. I've shared this with some of you. I wanted to share it again publicly. This author author categorizes our differences into, into three things. First is confessional absolutes. Right? The fact that God is a triune God, non-negotiable. The fact that Jesus is the only way to the Father, non-negotiable. The fact that this is the Word of God. Absolutely don't want to debate you on that. The fact that the church has a responsibility to care for the poor. It's an absolute, confessional, non-negotiable. And then there are convictions, right? 
what Paul calls in Romans 14, disputable matters. For instance, yes, Christians are called to be concerned about the poor, but how do we do that? Should the church care for the poor by limiting government and allowing private enterprise and private resources to fill that need? Or should the church endorse giving the state more power in order to redistribute wealth for the sake of the poor? See, that's a conviction. It's a conviction based on an absolute. But now we've entered the realm of debate, of worship wars. And then the third category is matters of taste. And I'll just say simply about that, congas or no congas, right? Matter of taste. You see, I think those are helpful categories to think about and to recognize that our problem is that we tend to want to make everything a confessional absolute. And it's natural for us to do this because our convictions flow from our love for Jesus and our desire to be faithful to his word and to live out that word. But the reality is not everything is a confessional absolute. Enter the phrase that you've heard from me before, coined by the 17th century German theologian, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. See, unity is not uniformity. Uniformity is easier. But it isn't better. Diversity in our stories, diversity in our opinions, it frustrates us at times. But in the end, it is our strength. And so are we committed to truth? Absolutely. Truth and unity. We must be. We must be commuted committed to the truth of the gospel. But beyond that, I recognize that things get really messy. As the implications of the gospel, as its application in our lives trickles down, it does so at different paces in our lives. Some of us frustratingly slow, But the Bible calls us, and Jesus longs for us to hang in there with one another. To, to bear with each other's weaknesses. To bear with each other's blind spots by God's grace. To be a chimp, not a rhino. It's a phrase that I heard from another book that I read. Be a chimp, not a rhino. Chimps are curious, right? Curious George. Everybody remember Curious George from your childhood? 
Chimps, chimps are curious. When they don't know something, they, they're, they're curious. They investigate. Rhinos just hammer in. Right? This is hard. It takes love. It takes gentleness. It takes humility. It takes a Christ-forming character in our lives. But I want to challenge us with it. I want to challenge you this morning with, as we close this point, with six practical ministries, as he calls them, from a book that some of you may be familiar with, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who I can be unified in the gospel with, but not unified over every single thing he believed, wrote a little book called Life Together. I want to read you a couple things that he says I think are helpful. Some of these we've talked about before, all of them are hard to do. He says, first of all, be committed to the ministry of holding one's tongue. Here's the quote from his book. He says, a decisive rule of every Christian fellowship is that each individual is prohibited from saying much that occurs to him. Slow to speak, quick to listen. James 4 Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother judges his brother, speaks evil against the law, and judges the law. This is so important. Because the the tongue is a fire. It's a deadly evil. And particularly in our age of social media and the megaphone blasts that we make, are you thinking about all the people that are reading that? Are you thinking about how they might take that out of context? The ministry of holding one tongue. Second, he talks about the ministry of meekness. This is just Jesus, right? Romans 12, 3, Paul says, For the grace given to me, I say that everyone who that everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. The ministry of listening. Here's his quote. Just as love to God begins with listening to his word, so the beginning of love for the brethren is learning to listen to them. We forget that listening can be a greater service than speaking. We should listen with the ears of God that we might speak the words of God. The ministry of helpfulness. We must allow ourselves, he says, to be interrupted by God. I was listening to a new song this week and it had a great line in it. I'm changed by lines, by sentences. And the line was this, I will trust... The song was a prayer to the Lord. I will trust that the detour is a road, is the road. I will trust that the detour is the road. Rather than viewing each other as inconveniences or annoyances, 
Maybe we ought to view each other as the path, as the road, as the opportunity that God has given us. Well, we could go on and on. Great book, Life Together, lots to think about. Brothers and sisters, our unity is centered on truth. But it must be carried by humility, by love, by grace. Conversations and community are are waiting for all of us. But it must be worked for. One final thing for us to think about today. And it's this. Our unity is missional. Our unity is missional. Our unity is grounded in who God is. Our unity is centered on truth. And our unity is ultimately for the purpose of mission. Remember that psalm that I read earlier? David gives this graphic picture of oil. Verse 2 in Psalm 133. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. That oil was this intensely fragrant and precious oil. Something like four quarts of olive oil. Mixed with pounds of various spices like cinnamon. And it all formed this syrupy, aromatic liquid that then would be poured on the head of Aaron. Brothers and sisters, this, this is what we are to the church. We are an aroma, excuse me, to the world. We are an aroma to the world. As the fragrance of the oil that set apart Aaron would flood the temple, so the aroma of Christ from his church is designed to fill the earth. The world needs our community. The world needs to see our unity, whether we or they acknowledge it or not. One of my former professors at seminary said this. He said, our churches are one of the last bastions of community, and yet many of us drive to church, listen to the sermon, say hello to our circle of friends, and return home without ever really experiencing community. Jesus presses it home twice in his many verses. Verse 21, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 23, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Jesus is praying for a unity that is not just in our heads, that is not just in this room, but that is tangible and evident to your neighbors, to your coworkers, to everyone out in the world. And instead, what do they see sometimes when they look at the church? Whether it be this church or the broad church. They see pride. They see backbiting. They see division by race. They see division by generation. They see division by class. And Jesus is at God's right hand and He's praying, no, be one, grounded in the truth but in some way expressing your unity in me. Jesus is not wanting to squelch diversity. No, we ought to celebrate diversity. But not to the diminishment of who we are in Jesus. Jesus. 
And some of this, I recognize, it's, it's, it's out of our control, right? We can't just snap our fingers and be unified in a way that we haven't been unified before. We can't snap our fingers and be diverse in a way that we haven't been before. But we can be conscious of what God is longing for. And we can take baby steps. Being diligent to maintain it. It requires love. His love. The kind of love we read about in Philippians 2. The kind of character we read about in Philippians 2 where it says about Jesus, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who made himself nothing, humbled himself, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. What attitude is that? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is praying for those he died for, that they would learn to die to themselves in order that others might live. In order that the world would know that He, that He is one because we are one. By His grace, may may we, in some small way, may we be the answer to our Savior's prayer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for these words from our Savior And for the challenge to our hearts and our lives, lives that so easily we confess, insulate, we insulate ourselves. We stay in our lane, unwilling to to venture, to venture out because it's uncomfortable, it's hard. Father, may we see your vision for your church. And while all distinctives, while all differences certainly ought not be abolished, Father, we can love better. We can show greater deference, greater humility, greater meekness, greater care with each other. And so, Father, I pray that you would make it so. That you would work this in us here at Ascension Presbyterian Church, that you would work this in all of the churches that confess and proclaim your great name, that indeed the world might know, the world might see the love that you have for your people. This we pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.